All right, good morning. My name is Brandon. I serve as the lead pastor here at Soma Midtown. So glad that you're here with us this morning. Two things as we get started before we jump in here to Luke 24. Uh, one, if you have a, ch- a kid in here, we're so glad to have kids in here. And so, yeah, I see you, Noah Mason. We love having kids. So just don't freak out. Like, you're not, you're not going to be a distraction. We're glad you're here. Just lower that anxiety level. Uh, if your kids start freaking out, you're fine to take them out if you want. We have a nursing mom's room downstairs. Uh, but we love having kids. We ran out of bags. And so we went to go get some more supplies. If you need more supplies or your kid breaks or chews or otherwise disposes of them, we will have some more out there. Uh, on a table. But don't worry, I've got four kids. My kids don't scream in service. We scream outside of service now. But we're really glad they're here, so don't worry about it. Okay, second thing. Um, It's been a tradition of the church for centuries. As they gathered in catacombs and graveyards and, you know, beautiful big church buildings and in people's homes, when they would greet each other, especially under fear of persecution, they had a little saying that they would call back to each other. And it was just simply one person would pass another and would say, he is risen. And the other would say, he is risen indeed. And so we want to start our service here just by saying that together. I'll say, he is risen, and you say, he is risen indeed, if you believe that. So he is risen. He is risen. risen. risen Amen. Well, um, we come into uh, Easter morning, uh, oftentimes, uh, and, and in America, at least in our time, this is a time we think of as crazy celebration and joy and hopefulness. But in every account of the resurrection, what's interesting is that we see Easter morning, the mood of Easter morning is is a different one. We find the disciples disappointed, fearful, heartbroken, confused, which is exactly what you'd expect if Easter morning, your hopes and your dreams and your longings had just been crucified on Friday. Luke 24 presents us with three resurrection accounts of disciples who, one of the main themes that ties these three stories together, three beautiful stories, but you see disciples who can't see Jesus. Just as an aside, I think this is really, if you're here, and, and I know that many of you are not disciples of Jesus, I know that some of you Maybe you grew up around church and you've left the church, and, and we're really glad that you're here. Maybe you find yourself a skeptic or maybe curious again. And I, I think the fact that we have here in all the resurrection accounts, disciples who can't see Jesus, who are just as confused, who are not gullible simpletons uh, like we like to think, but who are just as confused as we would be and as we are, I think speaks to the authenticity and the credibility of these resurrection accounts, right? Like if you're writing the hero myth, if you're a film person, or like if you're a writer, Joseph Campbell wrote the book on the the hero myth, right? If you're writing the hero myth of Christianity, it doesn't start with women seeing Jesus at the tomb. Women's testimony was not even admissible in court, right? If you were writing a story to persuade an ancient Near Eastern audience, you would not have women play the foil, right? That's one thing. Um, second thing, uh, you would not have all of your disciples not recognize who you are. Like, like in all the like Marvel, like you flex in a Marvel movie, it was like, yeah, there he is, right? Like here, it's like, who are you again, right? Like, oh, it's a ghost, right? They're, all, they're so confused. They don't recognize him. They don't believe him. And then like Jesus raises from the dead and like, where would you expect Jesus to go? Like not on a random road in the desert to, on a way to a small village called Emmaus, right? Like I, if I were Jesus, I'm going to Rome and I'm like, Caesar, let's do this. You know, like I'm going to Athens and I'm like debating with the philosophers, right? Like I am here, the wisdom of God is here. But like notice Jesus, he goes 
And he, and he wants to make sure that his disciples believe in him. He shows up on a road to some confused, disoriented, disappointed disciples. And I think that shows us like, is, is it embarrassing? Yes, it's embarrassing. It's a little bit weird because this is not how we'd write the story. But maybe that speaks to its authenticity. Like, why would you include something that embarrassing unless it was true? And so just something for us to think about as we jump into this story in terms of the credibility of it. Now, I want us just to ask the question today in this text, um, how did these disciples go from not being able to see Jesus to seeing Jesus, right? They start out blind, spiritually blind, and they end the story seeing Jesus. And I want us to just ask, like, is that not the journey for all of us, right? Whether you're here and you're a skeptic or you're here and you're a devoted follower of Jesus, we go through cycles of blindness and sight. And I want us to just kind of pay attention and ask, what can we learn today? What might God, through his spirit, be saying to us today? So let's start with why the disciples couldn't see Jesus. The story begins with two disciples who, and we don't know their identity, but they're walking away from Jerusalem toward a village called Emmaus. And they're debating, they're engaged. The language here is like in a really intense argument about all the events that just happened over the weekend on Friday and then into Saturday. And this random guy like kind of walks up beside, you ever had this happen like in a coffee shop, you're having like a really intense conversation and you notice like somebody's looking at you and they're like, mm-hmm, you know, like they're kind of like getting into your conversation or maybe in your office, you're like debating with a colleague and some weird random person like walks and you're like, I didn't invite you in. You're like in the airport or something like that. Like that's like this random guy just kind of like walks up alongside them in the desert and is like, what are you guys talking about? And Jesus is like, what, what are you, what's going on? And he begins to walk alongside them. But here's the interesting thing. The most interesting thing about all of these stories to me, and about this one in particular, in chapter 24, it says, they were prevented from recognizing him. This is a guy that they had walked with for years. They had spent time with. They had sat around fire pits telling stories, right? Like they knew Jesus' smell. They knew what he looked like. They knew what kind of clothes he wore. Like these are people intimately connected with Jesus, but they were prevented from recognizing. Now, why? There, there's all kinds of explanations. Notice it's in the passive. They were prevented. It doesn't say it's kind of ambiguous. Did Jesus prevent, like in Luke, sometimes Jesus will conceal his identity because he wants people to seek after him and he'll make it hard for them to do that. Um, some people think that it's because his resurrection body, I don't know if he's like more buff or if he like, you know, changed skin tone or something, like if he had different clo- toga on or something, but like, it, some people think his body was altered. So like, you ever been to, some of you are old enough to go to like a high school reunion and you're like, whoa, they put on some, you know, like looking a little different. I didn't recognize you. That's usually not a good thing if you go to a reunion. Somebody's like, oh, I didn't recognize you. Um, so maybe it's something like that. I don't know. But I think there's something deeper definitely happening here. And the text tells us, notice when Jesus asks what they're talking about, it says they stopped walking and it says they looked discouraged. Literally, the language is, they looked sad. And they, they asked this question that's super, I mean, I, I love like how funny the Bible is. I love how we miss it. We read it like real serious. But notice what they say to Jesus. Are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened here? Now, here's the irony. Jesus is actually the only one who knows the things that actually happened here. And they're asking Jesus, did you not know what happened? And they said there was this prophet named Jesus and he was crucified. And then here's, here's the kicker. We were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. You ever had that 
emotion we were hoping. It's in the past tense. It's in the imperfect past tense, right? If you're an English person, that is a thing that happens in the past that has continuing impact in the present. We were hoping, we're disappointed, and we're still disappointed. Now, here we are walking on the road Easter morning, not experiencing what we expected to happen. This is why I think the disciples couldn't see Jesus. They couldn't see Jesus because their deep disappointment had crucified their hope. Crucified their hope. The key to understanding this is the word redeem or redemption. Redemption is what sociologists would call a condensed symbol, right? Like an image or a metaphor that is like a hyperlink. If you double click on it, it opens up an entire system of meaning, right? This word redemption for the early Jews, for uh, Jewish believers here, was a, it was a political word and it was a spiritual word. I, I'm trying to modernize this and contemporize this for us. The only thing that I could think that would have this kind of like emotional import is like something like Black Lives Matter. And somebody says something, there's, there, you hyperlink on that and there's a whole system of meaning. Or somebody says, make America great again, right? Like this political, almost spiritual kind of thing fused together, right? Like you feel those emotions starting to like rise you're like, oh, it's church. Uh, I'm just saying that's how, that's how it felt, Okay. Redemption tapped into Jewish expectations. And when you double-click on redemption, you get the exodus, delivery from slavery and bondage. You get the prophets. You get the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God. Again, you have a people living in oppression, the Jewish people living under Roman occupation, waiting over centuries. They're diaspora Jews, waiting over centuries for a Messiah to come and crush, not just spiritually, but literally crush, like the streets flowing with the blood of their oppressors. That's the expectation. And that God was going to establish his kingdom on earth in Jerusalem as the center. So you can imagine what it must have been like. Maybe you can imagine to be waiting century after century, decade after decade, hearing the stories and the dreams and the promises. Like we're, we're getting together for Easter, some of us with our families, and we're going to have grandparents and great-grandparents. And one of the things that I love about, my grandparents are, are deceased, but I, I loved about grandparents, I don't know that I loved it as a teenager, but I appreciate it more now as an adult, is they tell those stories. The stories that you've heard a thousand times, you get together and they pinch your cheek and they're going to tell you the stories. And like, imagine having those stories handed down over the centuries by your ancestors. And then a man shows up in Jerusalem, Jesus of Nazareth, this guy from this obscure town. Uh, and, and, and he's all of a sudden doing these powerful things. He's a powerful prophet who takes on the corrupt religious establishment. He's a powerful healer, they said, who casts out demons and performs supernatural miracles among the poor and the marginalized. He's a powerful teacher who cuts through centuries of human tradition, kind of crusty tradition, and he makes the kingdom of God accessible to ordinary blue-collar people, right? He, he rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey with crowds of people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. I mean, this is better than a Beyonce call. Like, this is like Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. That's a psalm that pilgrims would sing as they marched up to Jerusalem on their way to Holy Week, on their way to Passover, right? So this sense of anticipation turns to joy. And then I want you to imagine Friday. So this is Thursday. Now I want you to imagine Friday, and it just evaporates. Like you ever had something that you really long for, just like a relationship, just evaporate. A, a marriage, evaporate. Something with your kids, just evaporate. 
it comes crashing down. Jesus of Nazareth is arrested. He's stripped naked and humiliated. He's beaten. He's mocked. He's brutally executed on a cross as an enemy of the state. And here's the thing that we need to see. Not only was Jesus crucified, but so were the hopes and the dreams and the longings of everyone who believed in Jesus. This is a a community thing. And so the two disciples are walking away from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem here is, is kind of that condensed symbol for a place of a crucified faith, crucified dreams, crucified community, crucified hopes. And they're walking towards Emmaus. Maybe they're going home. Maybe they're going to Emmaus to escape. Maybe they're going to Emmaus to seek some sort of consolation. But Emmaus is a place of disorientation. It's a place of disappointment. It's a place of mourning. Right? Because in their framework, the way Jesus just got humiliated, there can be no real meaningful God. Maybe there's a symbol of God. Maybe there's God as a metaphor, but it's not real anymore. There's no kingdom, no resurrection, no embodied future hope for these diaspora Jews in this moment. And this is why they can't, at least partially, why they can't see Jesus even though he's right beside them. A crucified Jesus didn't fit their framework, didn't fit their expectations. These expectations of triumph, glory, power, success collide with the reality of defeat and humiliation and failure and death. It's over and then silence on Saturday. That's what they woke up to Easter morning. Now, here's the thing. Just like them, disappointment occurs for us when there's a gap between our expectations and our reality. And that's why I love this narrative in this particular moment. I think this is one of the most beautiful and most poignant descriptions of our cultural moment in all of the resurrection stories. We live in a moment where people, we we are drowning in disappointment. With crucified dreams and expectations of ourselves, right? I'm not the person that I hoped I would be. My life's not turning out the way that I thought it would. Disappointment with our families, disappointment in our communities, disappointment with our country, disappointment with our political leaders, disappointment with our institutions, but probably most importantly this morning, if we're honest, disappointed with God, disappointed with the church, disappointed with faith, and maybe we find ourselves inching away, backing away, moving towards Emmaus, walking away, disappointed, disoriented, disillusioned. David Foster Wallace the great novelist, uh, he wrote a book called Infinite Jest. And uh, he, more than anybody else, had this ability before he died, a very young death, very tragic death, to capture the mood of a generation. And in, in an interview, uh, he was talking about why he wrote the book Infinite Jest. And he was talking about the sadness that he saw at play in a lot of his friends. And he said this, there's something particularly sad about it, something that doesn't have very much to do with physical circumstances or the economy or any of the stuff that gets talked about in the news. Here's the key line. It's more like a stomach-level sadness. I see it in myself and my friends in different ways. It manifests itself as a kind of lostness. Whether it's unique to our generation, I really don't know. I was white, upper-middle class, obscenely well-educated, had way more career success than I could have legitimately hoped for, and was sort of adrift. A lot of my friends were the same way, and some of them were deeply into drugs. Others were unbelievably workaholics. Some were going to singles bars every night. You could see it played out in 20 different ways, but it's the same thing. Stomach-level sadness. Do you know that kind of disappointment? And many of us here grew up, I think, around church. 
grew up, I mean, you've been to Easter, how many Easter services have you been to, right? Uh, and you grew up hearing the stories about Jesus. Maybe you went to student ministry, youth camp when you were a kid. Maybe you had a powerful encounter with God at some sort of religious school or university or when you were in college at Purdue or IU or Notre Dame or Butler, you had this encounter with God, a, a campus ministry. And, and, and then all of a sudden, like, you were alive and you had these expectations about God and about your life and about community and what it meant to live with a sense of purpose and meaning, and you were on fire, right? Like you just thought everything was gonna work out for you. In the last several years, the last several decades, maybe that dream has been lost or shattered, right? You look at the church over the last couple of years, you see betrayal, you see humiliation, you see abuse, you see abandonment, hypocrisy, or just irrelevance. Like it doesn't seem to have any relevance to what we're dealing with, what we're having to live under as human beings right now. Or maybe it's just more personal for you, right? Like you look at your life and it hasn't turned out the way that you wanted it to, right? Your job didn't turn out the way that you thought it was going to. It took a downturn. You lost your job. Or it's just maybe you've had so much success in your job and you're just like, it's empty. It's meaningless. It's not bringing about the things that I thought it would bring about. Your marriage hasn't turned out the way that you hoped it would. It fell apart. Your friendships haven't turned out the way you hoped. Your mental health isn't where you hoped it would be. Your children are not where they You thought they would be your finances, your faith. And maybe you just show up this morning disappointed. Disappointed and you see no other alternative than doubt. I mean, like cynicism is the only natural response when life feels like that. A sense of despair. And so maybe you've walked away from God. Maybe you've walked away from church. There's people that aren't here this morning. Our kids and our grandkids, our cousins, our friends, our neighbors that were here a couple of years ago. And maybe you haven't physically walked away. Like you're here, so you're listening to me. You're actually physically here. But emotionally and spiritually, you're going through the motions. And you, you, maybe you haven't physically walked away, but emotionally and spiritually, you've left the building. You've left your faith in any kind of meaningful way. And you feel this low-grade sense of anxiety or sadness or confusion. And here's just the good news about this story. What I love about this story is it doesn't cover over that sadness. We had hoped. They're talking to Jesus. But here's an important truth that we need to grasp about maturity in life and maturity, especially in discipleship to Jesus. Because I think this applies equally to the skeptic who's here, who's left faith, and to the person who might be finding themselves disappointed with faith, but they're still here. Here's here's what we learned from the story. There's always going to be times in our lives when our dreams and our expectations of God and each other and ourselves and the world will get crucified and die. The question is, how do we respond? right? Like that death, that crucifixion is a part of life. And that can either be the end of our hope, the end of the road, so to speak, to use the metaphor here, or it can be a bridge to a new beginning, a more, a a, a hopefulness, a more grounded, realistic hopefulness that's not naive and childish, right? We don't want childish faith. We want a childlike faith. We want a second naivete that, that sees the brokenness of the world, but is able to come out on the other side, not cynical, but yet hopeful. And so what if our disappointments, like this is the thing I think we can take so much encouragement from, what if our disappointments are invitations to meet Jesus? What if they're bridges? What if Jesus wants to come alongside of us? What if he already has come alongside us and we can't see him in the midst of our disappointments and they're not dead ends? Because that's the good news of Easter, right? That's why we're here. I hope that's why you're here. I know some of you are here because brunch is after this and you gotta go see your mom, but like you're forced to be here, but I hope we're here because there's good news, right? The good news is that Jesus is with them on the road. 
Jesus is with them, even though they can't see them, he walks with them and he opens their eyes to be able to see him. And so what does it look like to move from a place of disappointment where we can't see Jesus to move to a place from a place of discouragement to a place of hope where we can see Jesus and we can be transformed? What we see here in the story is just the basics of how God transforms people. It's two simple things. Simple but never easy, right? Presence and truth. Presence and truth, right? Any meaningful change in life comes through a loving presence that brings truth in our lives, right? Uh, truth without presence is cold, detached, and lonely. You ever been like truth bombed where somebody just drops truth, but it's like no empathy, no compassion, and you're like, whoa, what just happened there? You know, like it's just hard edgy. But like in the same way, presence without truth is sentimental, it's confusing, it's like your mom and she gives you that hug, it's like, it's okay, don't worry, and you're like, no, you don't know what I'm going through, you're like, thank you, but it doesn't mean anything, you know? Like any good therapies like that, when you have a great parent, there's that combination of empathetic presence and confrontational truth, and that's what Jesus brings. Jesus walks with them on the road in their disappointment, and just, I, I just want you to pay attention, like some of us, we need our image of God healed. We have an image of God as a Zeus-like character that throws lightning bolts or is detached from us. He doesn't care about what's going on in our lives, maybe even hates us. And what do you see in this passage? Jesus walks alongside them patiently with so much curiosity, with so much empathy. He listens. He asks questions. Like, he's like, what things? What's going on? Tell me how you guys saw what just happened. Like, again, he goes to them, and we see the heart of God pursuing lost, confused people. He doesn't rain down wrath on them. He just comes alongside and begins to probe gently, compassionately. He's trying to help them unearth and excavate the stories that they're telling themselves, that that's what's driving their disappointment, right? That's what drives our disappointment, not just what happens to us. It's the stories we tell ourselves about what happens to us that leaves us feeling disappointed, because we had expectations, those expectations didn't get met. So the question is, were these the right expectations in the first place? And Jesus is helping walk them into that. I'm just like, hey, tell me how do you see this? How do you interpret it? what just happened? What, what things happened? And then they just start to talk. They start to share. Right? Like our stories, the stories we tell ourselves arise from real places of experience, right? Our story is a combination of the things that we live, our experiences, the emotions that arise out of that anger, fear, sadness, loneliness, shame, guilt, and then the interpretations that we form out of that. And our interpretations then become a sort of identity and form the ideas and the assumptions and the scripts that we often, and here's the key, unconsciously live by that drive and govern how we behave. It's like an internal operating system. So imagine Jesus here like the ultimate IT consultant getting into the root of the problem here. We need to have this kind of courage with Jesus, right? We, I, it's like, do you have this kind of courage? Do I have this kind of courage? Just to hear Jesus say to us this morning, what things? What did you expect? What, what, how do you interpret life? Like, can we bring our disappointments to Jesus and just be honest, Jesus, I had hoped that my kids, this is gonna go like this. I had hoped my marriage was gonna go like this. I had hoped my faith was gonna go like this. Like, I get it's so much easier to settle for mediocrity it's so easy to not want to go there because that is a place of pain. That is a place that is dark, and it is hard, and it'd be so much easier just to move on and act like nothing's going on over here. But I promise you, live a little bit. Like anybody here over 40, you know that's a ticking time bomb that will explode in your 40s and 50s and 60s, and it's not pretty. 
And so Jesus brings this presence and he brings truth. He asks these questions and then he just drops this little truth bomb, right, in a really loving way. He says, how foolish and how slow you are to believe. All the words of the prophets. That's not Jesus being harsh. He's not saying you're slow or you're stupid. The word fool in the Bible, in the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, is a person who sees life without God who sees life partially, incompletely, selectively, who can't see multiple layers, but they reduce complex narratives down to reductionistic, simple narratives. That's the fool. And what Jesus is saying is, the problem is the story you're telling yourself is incomplete. Maybe it's the trauma they've experienced that's narrowing their their field of vision. Maybe they were just raised in a tradition that didn't give them the tools to really see the full story because the Pharisees missed it as well. But Jesus is saying, You're interpreting life through a faulty lens. The problem is not just what happened to me. That was God's plan. The problem is the lens that you've placed over what happened to me that's guiding your expectations and now driving your disappointment. You're seeing life as if the crucifixion was a design flaw. And Jesus says, the crucifixion was a design feature. This was always God's plan. N.T. Wright says they had been seeing it as the long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering, but it was instead the story of how God would redeem Israel through suffering. See, their grid for life was power, success, glory. The Messiah comes, wipes out our enemies, establishes his kingdom, done. And they got the ending right, right? But Jesus is saying, hey, you missed a key element of the narrative plot structure, that little thing called suffering and humiliation of the Messiah. Jesus is saying there's no glory, and this is a life principle, right? There's no glory without suffering. There's there's no resurrection. There's no crown without a cross. This is what theologians have long called the Pascal mystery, right? Death leading to resurrection, right? There's no resurrection unless something dies, and when something dies, it's always raised up in the economy of God. That's the Pascal mystery, And so Jesus walks them into, and this is key for us, he walks them into scripture. And he says, I want you to understand this is what the Bible and what scripture, your Hebrew scriptures said about the Messiah. If you go back to the beginning and you look at Adam, you look at uh, Moses, you look at Abraham, you look at David, you look at the prophets and their longing for justice, all of those were pointing forward to one day a Messiah coming and dying. Justice doesn't come through this explosion of power. Justice comes as power submits itself and dies and then explodes up on the other side of the grave in love and sacrifice. That's the way that God's economy works. Power comes through death. Power comes through suffering. Power comes through sacrifice. And so what Jesus is doing, and, and what's important for us, if you're a person seeking, like, I'm amazed at how many people struggling in their faith never actually read the Bible, and they settle for Google to tell them what they need, or their, like, group of, like, 25-year-old friends. Like, oh, I had a friend that told me this about the Bible. Read the Bible for yourself. It's all there, Jesus says. It all speaks to me. It all points to me, and I fulfill everything there. And so Jesus is doing something that we need done to all of us. He's restructuring their imagination. He's reinterpreting and integrating their concepts about faith and about God so that they can recognize Jesus as he is, not as they want him to be. That's what Jesus is doing. So this is a more mature discipleship that allows us to live with a more grounded and confident hope. I love the way Philip Yancey, the author, um, he says in Disappointment with God, Great old book. He says, faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. 
So Jesus says, let me, let me just walk you back in reverse from the new creation of my resurrection and help you see your life through the lens of what God has been doing all along. And we have to do this work. If we want to experience transformation, we have to do this work. This work of interrogating our interpretations of God, interrogating our interpretations of faith and church in light of Jesus' resurrection and in light of new creation. We have to work backwards and reverse so that we can believe in advance. We have to begin to ask and say, what incomplete, what false narratives, what expectations, what assumptions, what frameworks do I need to let go of? Because it's not the real Jesus. What do I need to let die so that Jesus can actually resurrect my faith? And I don't know what that script is for you. Maybe, maybe it's like, hey, I thought if I was just a good religious kid who followed all the rules that I would have a good life. Maybe you followed the Midwestern winter script of religion, right? Do the right things, follow the rules, and you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. So it's Benjamin Franklin, whatever, you know, but like that, that you thought that. And like, it didn't work out like that. And now you're like, God must hate me or God must be disappointed in me. God doesn't care about me. He's abandoned me. God isn't good or he's not powerful or he's not both. And evil has the last word. Like those are, those are narratives that are false. Now I see how they're true based on your experience, but they're false in the larger story of God. And that's what God wants to do. Jesus wants to transform us. But we have to confront those faulty narratives. And so I just want to end here. Like it's so beautiful how Jesus flips the script on them and there's a conversion experience. We end with Jesus going into their home. They invite him into their home. They're supposed to be the the hosts. But notice Jesus flips the script and Jesus plays, not Martha Stewart, but he plays host. And he's like, hey, I'm going to take some bread. He breaks the bread. Their eyes are opened up. Their hearts are burning. They have an encounter with Jesus. They are transformed. And then they go back to the other disciples and they say, the Lord has truly been raised. Their hope is now restored. Notice transformation is holistic, right? Their, their intellects have been satisfied. Their questions have been answered. Their minds have been reinterpreting the data. So there's an intellectual component to coming to Jesus. It's not shut your brain off at the door and just pay attention to burning hearts. But it's not a, a cold, detached rationalism either, right? Our hearts are burning. We have an existential encounter with God. That's what it means to be converted. Our intellects are satisfied. We see Jesus as true and good and beautiful to the degree that then our hearts begin to burn and we say, yes, despite everything that doesn't make sense to me, yes, I want this. I want him to be true. Pascal, Blaise Pascal, the great philosopher said, even if you don't believe Christianity is true, you should want it to be true. It's the best story ever told. And just maybe it's true. And so as we go to communion here and we, and we come to this invitation, I just want us to be reminded that Jesus meets us at the table here. Jesus meets us on the road. He meets us in his word. He meets us at the table and he wants to invite us to experience this same transformation. He wants us to see him. He's here with us right now by his spirit. He is with us and he wants us to see him. For some of us, that maybe means we see him for the first time as he really is. And we turn from trying to find life and joy and meaning and other things. We, we, we give him our disappointment. We give him our discouragement. We give him our despair. And we turn to him. And like the disciples in John chapter 8, the best profession of faith ever is Peter's. All the crowds leave Jesus. My favorite thing to share at Easter. And, Pete, and, and he's like, Peter, are you going to leave too? And Peter's like, well, where else am I going to go? <laughs> 
the most reluctant confession of faith. I got no better alternative. And maybe that's you. It's like, well, nothing else seems to be working out for me, right? Dr. Phil, that's not working out for me. So how about Jesus? How about I trust Jesus and just see if I see the real Jesus? Maybe it'll be different this time. And so maybe that is surrendering our, for others of us, maybe it's just we're in that place where our dreams have been crucified. We're disciples of Jesus, but we need to go deeper. And we need to see Jesus and meet him right now in our disappointment. He's here. Disappointments are imitations to see him, to move deeper into faith and maturity, and to remember the words of the great pastor and novelist Frederick Buechner. The resurrection means the worst thing isn't the last thing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to consider your resurrection, to think again about how you have been risen from the dead, and that's not just symbolic, that's not just a myth, this is a reality. You broke into our world, you lived the life that we couldn't live, you died the death that we should have, you rose again, bringing about a new creation power, a new reality into our lives. And God, we want to experience that, let's be honest. The reason we feel disappointed is because we're not walking in that power. We're not walking with that kind of loving presence. We don't experience that in the midst of the heartache and the headaches of life. And so, God, would you just open up our eyes like Jesus and the Emmaus disciples? Would you allow us to see you as you are, to have an encounter with you by your Spirit, and to be changed this morning? God, we long for that. We pray for that. And we pray that as we come to communion, that we would meet you here in the bread and the cup in a powerful way. I pray this in Jesus' name.